Holy Spirit of God, we do ask that you would come and fill us, Lord, so that we might truly have ears to hear, a heart to do your will, uh, hands that move in the direction of our hearts and your call upon our lives. Lord, as we talk about Jesus, the Savior, and as we talk about salvation, generally and specifically with the scriptures, we ask that you would again guide us, Lord, so that we have an understanding, learn some new things, Lord, but put it into practice in all that we do. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, that he is our Savior, not just ours, but the entire world's. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, can you hear me all right? Okay, super. Thank you. Okay, here we go. I, um, I don't know if we've how long it's been or if we've studied the book of Hosea or if you know everything about Hosea, but if you just read the six verses that we're doing today, it's kind of vexing. It's like, okay, well, the word salvation is used only once in all the book of Hosea and it's used in this text. I'm not sure always how we come up with the text that we use for our studies or for our series or for sermons, but uh, we're in Hosea. So let me tell you a little bit about him. If this is a review, you can tell me. So do you all know a lot about Hosea? No, okay, great, good. Then we'll all learn together. So he is a son of Bear. He is from the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, Judah is the southern kingdom. And all the other minor prophets. And he is the first of the 12 minor prophets. You get that name because what you've written is not very long. So people think, oh, well, they're just not that important. No, it's just the text that they wrote is shorter. So they are considered the minor prophets. In Hebrew, it is just one book. All these 12 are, are lumped together. So um, something for you to know about him. He's the one prophet from the northern kingdom. Uh, some people say he's a little edgy with his language and the way he talks and almost seems um, a split personality because he, he goes back and forth from some good news to not some good news. And, and um, he is in um, a period of time that is in the mid-8th century, 8th uh, century before common error. So uh, Assyria is a big group of folks. Again, the kingdoms are split, but the people are doing okay. Actually, they're fairly affluent. And so um, as with most of us, we call on God when life is difficult. And other than that, we kind of do just fine. Uh, they say there are no atheists in foxholes, and I think that's probably true. And I don't know if any of you are going to brave out to go see the movie 1917. I know we're all going to know. If it's R-rated, despite my age, <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I don't do R-rated movies. I'm not, I'm not mature enough for that. I, I, the violence kind of drives me nuts. And, um, and yet, why would you have such a horrific war? World War I was a very, very messy war. And, but a lot of that, when you see just the little clips from it, they're in foxholes. And you can't help but think of that, boy, there are no atheists in foxholes. But when life's going really well, you kind of do what you like to do, and you do what's ever popular. You do, you're just kind of distracted. And many of us wake up and we go, thank you, Lord, as we should every day. Um, and we're grateful. And, um, but oftentimes it's when things are not going well. So the people have kind of uh, not thought about God a whole lot, and then um, God calls his prophet Hosea, and um, uh, Jeroboam is, is the one who's in um, the northern kingdom in control right now, and God calls him, and he wants him to model how God is feeling about his people. Let's back up just a second. The very beginning, God adopts Israel, right? You're, he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, they're going to be my people, and you're going to influence the whole world, and this is good, but I'm adopting you. So if you've ever, um, it's kind of like when you're born into a family, you don't pick that. Trust me, most of us would like a little input. Excuse me, before I come out, can I just tell you, can I ask these questions about you just to make sure that I'm going to fit well with your family? Well, we don't get to do that. In the same way, when uh, we get adopted, you don't get to do that either. It's, a, it's actually, they do a little bit better. They try and match well. They do all these kinds of things when people are wanting to adopt. It's a great thing. But for the most part, the baby or the child or whatever does not get that kind of input. And then, of course, we all hit teenagers, and we do two things. Now, if you had ever met my mother, and, and many of you 
uh, here. At least a few of you have met her. My mother um, had red hair all her life. She started red, and then, as with me, when it needed some help, she went right in that direction. So, but if you saw my mother and you saw me, and words came out of my mouth that said, I don't think you're my mother, I think I've been adopted, people would laugh at us because we just look so much alike. But I wanted a new family, and I think most of us kind of go through that. But if you're adopted, you're adopted. And God adopted Israel. You're my people. And the second thing God did is he said, I want to make a covenant with you. As a husband would to a wife, a covenant, a promise, a relationship. Now that requires you to respond. Am I right? You know, in all the flowers in the world and the big rings and everything else, bottom line is, do I want to spend my life with this person? Is this a covenant I want to enter? So you have a choice there. And, but when you, when you go into that covenant relationship, there are expectations, fairly so. I will be faithful to you. I'm, I'm not going to mess around with anybody else. You are my, you're my spouse. You are the one who I'm giving myself to. So it's in that context. I've adopted you. You are my people. It's something that I have done. I didn't even ask you, but trust me, it's a good deal. Can I be adopted by anybody better than God? <laughs> but then I have this covenant relationship, like a marriage. Be faithful to me. Well, Homer is, uh, not Homer, Hosea is a man that God calls to marry a woman named Gomer, who is a prostitute. And um, God said, I want you to marry her, and you're going to have a family with her, and they're all going to symbolize the unfaithfulness of Israel. Your relationship with your wife will be symbolic of my relationship with Israel. Now, I always like to negotiate things with God. I'm sure none of you ever do that. Whatever God says, sure, God, let's go for it. But I'm kind of like, well, can we just talk about this, or is this an option? But Hosea, being the obedient person he is, takes Gomer. She remains unfaithful. The first three books of Hosea are not very happy. In fact, most of Hosea is not very happy. It kind of goes back and forth. But it's this tragic story about a man who takes this uh, woman to be his wife. She is unfaithful to him. And God uses that. Israel, do you see what's going on? Um, Hosea, can you empathize? Yeah, can you empathize with me about what's happening? And um, in the midst of that, there is a language that goes throughout the book of Hosea, one of um, accusations, one of betrayal, one of unfaithfulness, and then a response um, of God uh, saying to them, that there is punishment for what you've done. There's also hope. And so you see this, the punishment, the hope, the accusations, the hope, the betrayal, but the hope. And those keep interweaving back and forth throughout the book of Hosea. And um, so it's not totally without um, redemption or without hope, but it's a difficult piece because of that. Now we get to... Um, if you look down, if, if, we, if I just did a little summary for you, and I have this down here, um, you have the sections. The first part, you have uh, his personal life. The second part, um, chapters 4 through 11, is um, framed in the words, hear the words of the Lord. God is really calling to his people, really wanting them to listen to him, and continues with this pattern of doom ending with a future hope. He's just telling them, it's doom, doom, doom for what you're doing. You, there are consequences. You will be sorry. You've broke that covenant. You're, you're the ones who have been my children, but you don't act like it. All these kinds of things. You have lived a life of idolatry. You've oppressed the poor. Uh, doom, 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 but a future hope, hope, hope. In the last section, um, you continue with the doom, hope pattern in it. And the verses that we are reflecting on today, verses 1 through 6, are about death. It's just like it, it's consumed. You're dead, dead. It's over. It's done. And so you, you kind of have this language in this little bit, one statement of who God is in there. And so if you just read that, I, if I were you, I'd go, why are we doing this? So that's one reason to give you the background. But if you look at your paper there, what we can learn from Hosea, God suffers when his people are unfaithful. Any of us who have ever been betrayed by anything, um, you suffer. It's painful. 
God suffers. Um, God cannot condone sin. And I love it when we're trying to figure out how bad is our sin. It's, that's a goofy question. That's, you know, that your, your sin is sin. God does, is never going to condone sin. And we keep loving to compare ourselves with other people um, for the most part, because we can always find someone who we think is more sinful than we are. As soon as you do that, you've just gone to the bottom of the barrel, folks. <laughs> you just, if, you, if you need to ask that question, it's just not a good thing. So. But, so God cannot condone sin. That's not who God is. God is holy. Can't condone sin. Uh, God will never cease to love his people that are his own. We are part of that. He will never cease to love his people. And once again, ever been betrayed by anything? Ever been hurt by somebody? I'm walking to my car yesterday. I'm down in Point Loma because Presbytery loves meetings down there. And um, I hear, a, uh, see these kids, they're teenagers, and this boy goes, I love you, Mom. And I thought, oh, what a sweet thing. Now, when my kids told me that, they were normally up to something. <laughs> we're going to be in the library studying. I thought, okay, if that were me, I'd circle back in 20 minutes just to make sure they were there. It was like a sweet thing. And you think, oh, that parent will always love that kid, no matter what kind of shenanigans they may or may not be up to. And it just is reflective of my children, not that boy at all. When he said, I love you, Mom, and I thought it was kind of cool he said that. Um, but there you go. He will always love his people. And then God seeks to bring back those who have forsaken him. Forgiveness is the God whom we serve. God is always, always trying to bring back those who have deserted him, those who have left him, those who have hurt him, those who have betrayed him, those who have... That is our God. Our God is always trying to woo us back for those who are forsaken. All right, let's just look. On, in chapter 13, I'm going to read these six verses when we get over for Hosea. When we get to Acts, I'll tell the story. It's a long, longer passage. We won't have time. Okay, uh, verse uh, chapter, chapter 13 of Hosea, uh, verse 1. With Ephraim spoke that there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Your first death statement there. And now they keep on sinning and make a cast image for themselves, idols of silver made according to their understanding, all of them the work of artisans, sacrificed to those, they say. People are kissing calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like chaff that swirls on, from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Yet I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who fed you in the wilderness and the land of the drought. When I fed them, they were satisfied. They were satisfied, and their heart was proud. Therefore, they forgot me. It's almost like no good deed goes unpunished, right? It's like God takes care of you, and you just forsake him. You just forget him. Uh, but there's that word, Savior. Now, a couple of things. If you look back, if any of you ever have done any farming or if you're ever out in the world, you will be able to relate with, um, with this imagery that uh, first it's just this death. People are not obeying, it's, and they're out after Baal. Um, just remember that um, we live in a, a very eclectic, a very diverse world. It doesn't begin to compare with um, a part of at least, it, certainly in the New Testament, uh, when you, we're going to look at the missionary travel, and it's in a, a very, very diverse group of people. So um, we can relate with that and have to do with that. But Baal was a, a god of the Assyrians. He was a god worshipped. Um, they're kissing the calves. That's all part of the worship that's giving um, homage to them. And God is not happy. You like it. People who do this, they are, you're done. You're gone. And then he uses this imagery that we see there. Um, that uh, you shall be like the morning mist. Well, I come, I think all of you know this, from Bird Rock area and, and come down over the hill of I-5 before I get off at Via de la Valle. Okay? You know the mist that kind of gets in there sometimes? So, and it the temperature drops there, guys. And winter especially, it will be like 45 degrees. I'm headed to church my thermal coat on, which is in the back waiting for me, by the way. It's a little nippy in here. But um, I'm headed down that um, part of I-5 towards Via de la Valle, and I'm looking out, and it's kind of covered 
like this mist covers that little valley right there, and all of a sudden the temperature's down to like 38, 37. I turn up my heat, put on my <laughs> car seat warmer, you know, but that mist is right there. And when I come home at about half past one or two o'clock, it's all gone. It's as if it was never there. Israel, you're like that mist. It's as if you're never there. That's a death statement. Like the chaff, if you've ever worked in the fields, um, if you've ever seen that happen, uh, you throw up the, in the threshing floor, that chaff just blows away and it's gone. Or like smoke the other day. I don't know if it was toast or something else that was cooking downstairs. I'm upstairs, Rick is upstairs, and I'm smelling the smoke, and it's kind of, you know, kind of, and I'm like, wow, what happened? I go downstairs. By the time I get downstairs, um, it's just about gone because the doors have been open. We burnt the toast. The doors have been open, and all the smoke is leaving, and now it's gone, as if it's not there. And that's how he's talking about Israel. Y- you're gone, like the chaff, like the mist, like the smoke. Like, there, that, is, that is a death statement about who they are. That is how God is perceiving them. And then he makes that statement, and for yet I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. In a moment we're going to look at Old Testament. Savior is a unique word. There's no one else that rescues you. There's no one else that takes care of you. I am your Savior. And I've taken care of you, but you've forgotten me. So you have this language that's going on. So this is not really a hope statement that we see in here at all. God is recalling for his people his powerful acts. And um, again, only once in all of Hosea is the word Savior used. It's used right here. In the midst of death, death, death. (laughs) Annihilation, you're done. It's gone. You've evaporated. Um, But I'm your Savior. And so you hang on to that. Um, and then he makes this accusation, they forgot me. Um, uh, it only happens once in the whole youth ministry life of probably every youth leader. I'll never forget, and I was in high school at the time, and we were going on a trip, and we're headed out, and you know, you always wait for kids, and you're fairly patient uh, for a person who has a watch that is exactly on time and has nothing to do with my getting any place on time, but nevertheless... Um, you wait for kids, but at some point you kind of leave. So we're all together. All the kids seem to be there, and we leave, and all of a sudden the youth director, we're halfway, we're nowhere close, we cannot turn back, goes, oh my gosh, I forgot to pick up so-and-so. I forgot him. Can you imagine being a high school kid and being for? I... This is a long time ago, guys. I was telling somebody, I, I tell them I'm 85, and people think I look really good for my age. Um, not quite that old, but I am old, but at time in my high school, I've never forgotten. And that's all our fear that will be forgotten, right? God didn't say I forgot you. God said, you forgot me. God suffers. God suffers. So let's talk about the Old Testament and what, what Scripture has to say about the Savior. I have things down here. You can just look at it at the bottom of your page. Uh, The verb uh, to save, which is used in the Old Testament, um, is exactly that. It's a verb. It's not a noun. It's about the action of God. Now, God also is named the Savior, but it's an acting word. Um, It means to rescue or to deliver. And uh, most commonly, it's associated with deliverance from enemies. Uh, Many of you could think about... uh, the Psalms, and we all love the Psalms, but the Psalms are kind of grumpy. I mean, most of them, are, in, in comparison, it's outweighed for the grumpiness and the need. But oftentimes, Paul is asking for God to come and rescue him. Come and save me. Save me from my enemies. Rescue me. So you, you see that language. Um, it's also a state of well-being. And uh, again, part of what was happening to Israel at the time is even though the kingdoms were split, even though they were going through kings like duck goes through a watcher, um, they felt like they were in a secure place. They had that safety because they were able to do what they wanted to do. Um, But it's a safe, um, and it's more than just um, 
you know, during hurricanes or something else, if you have friends in those places, you look for that post, oftentimes on uh, some kind of social media, um, tag themselves safe. You know, they're in a sheltered place or the, um, the storm has not hit them or has not hurt them or there's been an earthquake, but we're in a safe place. Um, we have an earthquake in um, Northern California and all our friends from the Midwest call and ask us if we're okay, right? Because they have that. We're in a safe place. So it, it had a lot more to do that, with that. It also includes the peace um, that accompanies God's kingdom. So God's salvation, God's saving work is a, is a place of being comfortable. And here's the thing in the Old Testament that I think oftentimes we forget in the New Testament because we're so excited about the salvation that is the ultimate salvation in Jesus, is that salvation had everything to do with present tense or near future, dwelling on the earth. It wasn't about eternal life for the people of Israel. It was about their present life. Save me from my enemies that I'm facing now. Even the healing. Save me, I read last night from um, Isaiah 48 where, um, Lord, heal us because you are the Savior. Just that need of, of physical healing, that need of, of being at peace. So it was an ongoing thing. It was what was happening to them right then and there. The salvation that they sought out, that was what it meant for Israel. It wasn't exclusive for that, but that was predominantly the way in which Israel uh, saw salvation, the way in which the Hebrew uh, word talks about it. So it is a God who saves, a God who rescues, a God who delivers them. Again, the psalmist crying out, uh, lots of Isaiah that talks about um, who God is as a savior, but rescuing his people. And then when the uh, prophets promise in the back page there, salvation, it's not something up in heaven, but something in the future of the world. Even the prophets who are doing that, he's going to restore the kingdom. We're going to build the kingdom. We're going to build Jerusalem again. We're going to be those people who dwell with um, God who brings the deliverance and blessing. And they're dependent. And that's the whole point. I have adopted you. I will take care of you. Trust me. Um, I will deliver you. I will be there for you. Um, God alone is the true Savior. He may use people to save people. He may, you know, like Moses has a circuitous route <laughs> um, into the promised land. He doesn't quite get to see it, but, you know, he uses him to kind of rescue the people out, but God alone is the Savior. He may use people, but he is the true Savior. And it said, in Isaiah, it's a great example, I am the Lord and there is no other Savior. So we get back to Hosea. Do they not know that I am the one Savior for them? So he wants that emphasized. And it's promised not just to Israel, but to all the earth. And Isaiah 52, we'll talk about that. Um, that God is the God who has adopted Israel, but more than Israel, we are now adopted with God. God's salvation is for all people and his desire for all people. And so um, you have that theme, not just in the New Testament. We oftentimes think of that. Well, that was like just part of it. But no, it's talked about even Abraham when he said, I will make you a great nation and all people will be blessed. They'll all know me through you. So uh, you just get that primary focus um, that all the world would experience that. And then as we look towards Jesus, and we're going to go to Acts, and we'll talk about Jesus, the Savior, and then we'll kind of put those together. But it's the divine Savior, the divine salvation, the work that God does for us, both present, future, and eternal. Uh, just a quick thing. I think sometimes as Christians... And I was talking to someone the other day. We meet on Mondays, I think I told you, the music people, and we go over the last sermon and the last worship, and then we look for what's coming up, and we read the scripture of the week, and we kind of talk about it. And, um, and so I was talking about the uh, salvation and the four spiritual laws. Any of you grow up with the four spiritual laws? We all know this four spiritualists. My husband rewrote it because he's so reformed. He doesn't like the last one. Like God is up there incapable of wooing us or doing anything. He just has to wait till we make a decision. Rick hates that, so he wrote the last part of it. But it's like God loves us. We're separated by sin. 
He sends Christ to make that bridge between us, and we just have to say yes. So those are the four spiritual laws. Um, God has already saved us. The question is, do we recognize that? Do we embrace that? And yes, it is through Christ. Um, so we look at that, but what we oftentimes do when we share that four spiritual laws, it's all about the great by and by. It's not about the salvitic work of Christ in our lives now. Never want to forget that. Um, so let's now turn to um, Acts uh, uh, chapter 13, 13 through 26. I think one of the saving stories about this is John Mark, who's mentioned in this. I don't know if you all read this story. Not all feel better. <laughs> yes. Okay, we read this. Okay. Acts chapter 13. We're just looking at 13 through 26. It's in the middle of a pericope. It's in the middle of a, a chapter. And um, it's about the first missionary journey. So part of what confuses us is that uh, Paul, who up until this moment has been called Saul, so now he has his new name, Paul, is with Barnabas. Barnabas is his mentor and his teacher, and they're going out together on a missionary journey, and they're taking a young man named John Mark, who's mentioned in here too. John Mark is a nephew, he's related, or a cousin of Barnabas. And uh, John Mark's mother's name is Mary, and she has a big house. And she's probably a widow because it gives her credit. It's her house. And, um, and we know it's a big house because lots of worshipers, uh, followers of Jew, would come there and worship. And so she had a gift of hospitality. She opened her house up. It was a place of uh, people would gather for worship. So it's a, a place that has some kind of affluence as well as influence. And John Mark is a young believer. Um, it, some historians think he is the young man at the arrest of Jesus who was there watching and then ran away naked. Um, so we know a part about him. He is given the um, authorship of the book of Mark. But in this little story, we see a glimpse of somebody who wasn't at their best. And that is John Mark is to go on this missionary journey. They're going to head from Antioch of Syria. So if I'm doing this backwards, Antioch of Syria for you all. And they're going up to Antioch um, in Galatia. Pisidia. And that, it gets kind of confusing because they're like on, the, on a missionary journey, but they were in Antioch and now they're going to Antioch. So they're traveling over there. It's a first missionary journey. It's probably about two years to do that. And John Mark's supposed to go with him. Well, he gets cold feet and he leaves. Um, later on, Paul just writes him off. Boy, you blew it. You're done. I'm not going with you. And he and Barnabas split. Later on, though, Paul says, send my regards to uh, John, referring to John Mark who is um, working with Timothy and doing a good work. And I just think, boy, there's some redemption. Talk about redemption. Talk about rescue. Talk about Savior. But they're going, and um, they're going as Jesus commanded, always go first to the Jews. Go to the Jews, go to the Jews, go to my people Israel, tell them the good news. Now, Savior, Old Testament, present tense, Save me now, rescue me now, take care of me now, give me a, a, a future that I'm going to experience here on this earth. So does it make sense that they're looking for an anointed one, a Messiah, who's going to reestablish the kingdom Israel on earth, who's going to bring about the kings that they wanted, the power that they wanted, the um, peace of mind and the God of our God that we know present tense here and now. That's what they're looking for. Paul and Barnabas start out, and just so you know, in Scripture, the main leader is always referred to first. Um, not like our nice Emily Post, when you refer to man and woman, you very nicely say the woman's name first. There, it's whosoever has, it's the person of power. And I will not, I will not comment on, well, of course, that's why we say the woman's name first here in America, but I won't, so. <laughs> but here you go. So, you have in the scripture about um, Barnabas and Paul, you start with Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, and then it goes Paul, Barnabas, Paul, Barnabas, and then pretty soon it's nothing but Paul and Barnabas. Paul has taken over the leadership there, and, um, and you see that going on. I think, could I be a mentor of somebody who becomes uh, more influential than I? What a great thing that would be. And that's exactly what happened in his mentoring him. Uh, John Mark... Um, himself became somebody of great 
influence. And so here you have these people, they're, they're starting out and they go to Antioch and Pisidia and they go where they're supposed to go, where the people are that they're supposed to bring the good news. They go to a synagogue. Very, very common when you go to a synagogue and you're visiting that people, it's kind of an open forum, forum and they would ask you to speak. So they say to Paul and Barnabas that are there, hey, bring us what exhortation, what good word, what words um, do you want to bring to us? And Paul begins to talk to them. And what he shares with them is what they know. If you want somebody to feel like they know what's going on, talk about things that they're familiar with. So whenever you know, people say, how do we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people? Let's start with what they know rather than um, either use words they don't know. Um, going on, I think I told you years and years ago when I went on sabbatical, I went to 16 different churches and uh, just to see what their worship was like. And the question I asked every place I went was, would I feel stupid here? <laughs> like, would I feel clueless? Would I not know what's going on? And all but maybe three of those churches, I felt just dumb as dirt. Like, they had a secret language, and I didn't know it. And until I got it, boy, I was an outsider. So we always have to be careful how we share that gospel. So Paul begins this way. He begins to share with them, you Israelites and others who fear God. So there are people there who are what you would call converts, that they have become um, uh, converted into the Jewish faith, but they were not born into um, a, a family of Israel, family of faith. But he, he includes them in there because they are following the law. And he talked about the people of Israel, and they were chosen people. There we go back to that adoption. And he made the people great, and he stayed with them all through Egypt, took them out, took them to the promised land. Everything that Paul talks about here is about what Paul has done for Israel, for his people. So he takes them out and um, gives them to the land of Canaan and an inheritance, and they were there for about 450 years. And then after that, he gave them judges. Why did he give them judges? Because they were kind of losing their way. And the time when the judges judged, and meant and the people did what they wanted in their own eyes, but he's giving them to that. Then out of the judges, not quite good enough for them, um, and it sent them prophets, started with Samuel. So the prophetic word went out, follow the Lord, this is what the Lord is doing. Can you see, here's, your, here's the God that you want to follow because he really is the one we get back to, that Savior. He's the one that will take care of you. He's the one who is your God and God alone. And then they ask for a king, and this is true. Not God's plan, Israel's plan. We need a king if you just give us a king because see, then we could be like everybody else because everybody has a king and the king is powerful. So he gives him Saul, pretty powerful person, reigns for 40 years, all this Paul is telling him. This is in Sunday school, and you know, and they're telling the story of um, Jonah and the whale. We all know that. We're all nodding our heads. We all, you know, we feel really good because we know this Bible story, and it's going really well, and they're all nodding their heads. And they get there, and he goes, and then, um, and then he had to remove Saul because Saul was not good, and he made David their king, and this is what they said about David. And this is, if you wanted to look down there in verse 22. When he had removed him, that's referring to Saul, he made David their king. In his testimony about him, he said, I have found David, son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart who will carry out my wishes. Verse 23. Of this man's posterity, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus as he promised. So the promise given to Israel has come true in the person of... This is when they're nodding, and all of a sudden they go, what? The Savior, oh, the new king. This is the person that you're bringing. Jesus, the Savior. And then he goes on to say, before his coming, John had proclaimed that one greater than he is coming, so great that I can't even take off his sandals. And feet are not considered a really cool thing that you want to touch. Or he said, I'm not even worthy of that. Only slaves, I'm not worthy of that. This person is so much greater than I. My brothers, you descendants of Abraham's family and others who fear God, to us this message of this salvation has been sent. So this is why I'm here, to tell you about the Savior Jesus. Jesus, and you know him because you know the promise given. They're all going, yep, we know about Abraham, we know about 
Israel and Egypt. We know about the land of Canaan. We know about the 450 years. We know about the prophets and the kings. We know about everything that there is to know about, and the promise that God gave through the lineage of David has come into fruition in the person of Jesus. That's your salvation. So what does Savior in the New Testament mean? Okay, turn on the back of your little book if you want to follow this. It's really scary. There we go. Um, so at the very beginning, Matthew 21.1. By the way, Jesus, the name is Yahweh saves. Yahshua. Um, Yahweh saves. So in Matthew 21, or in Matthew 1.21, the angel comes and gives this announcement. And um, in the announcement says that um, a baby's going to be born who will save his people from their sins. Remember Old Testament. Yes, save me from my sin. That was definitely a part of it. Um, I know that I've sinned against you, God. Uh, rescue me from that, but also rescue me from my enemies. Rescue me from, from all that there is. Um, but to have, he's going to rescue you from your sin. Now, if we had uh, time, we'd go back to how did sin begin in, in that whole creation story. Uh, God uh, creates us, desires a relationship with us, and um, we desire a relationship with God on our terms. Like, basically, we'd like to be God. <laughs> and that's, that's the whole, uh, you know, story narrative um, in, in Genesis is the idea that I can be God. And uh, so sin breaks into the world. We are captive to sin. We also choose sin. Um, I went out to dinner the other night, and they had all kinds of desserts. And um, I don't know why they put them all out there, because as soon as they see chocolate, it's like, well, that one's easy. Um, it's kind of like, why would we not want that? And so even though we don't like the consequences of sin, it's like that delicious dark chocolate mousse dessert. So we just kind of want to go there. And so we continue to live in that life of sin, but we don't like the consequences so much. But Jesus comes, the Savior. He will save the people from their sin. Makes that um, part of, of the statement of Yahweh saves. God of the people Israel will save their people, will forgive their sins, rescuing them from exile and restoring his kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom on earth. That's a part that I think has been a struggle, um, especially when people say, well, why haven't uh, people of Israel um, embraced Jesus? Well, part of it is they're looking for the, for the salvation of the Old Testament. We want, our, we want our place established here. We want the king established here. We want the Messiah that we thought would come back to be the one who takes care of us here and now, not so much an eternal. And not, uh, yes, rescuing from sin, but not seen in the same way that Jesus comes to make that salvitic work once for all. Let's look more at this. Uh, so Jesus saves to the cross. He came to erase what had separated uh, the people of God and all humanity from God's reign, which is sin. That's our big separation is that we sin, we fall short of the mark, we get distracted. Um, sin led to death, and Jesus takes on sin in an earthly body through the death so that we can be reconciled with God. So identifying fully with humanity, but being fully divine, Jesus takes on our sin on the cross. Philippians 2, have a chance to look through verses 6 through 11. Christ fully obedient, takes on our sin for us, paying that price. Old Testament, lammies, you know those cute little things that they would sacrifice, they would do it, they'd have to keep doing it. And let me tell you, they would get pretty doggone cute lambs, they were perfect. They had to be without blemish because they had to represent something that hadn't been spoiled or hurt or broken, and they would sacrifice that lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes for all of us, saving us through his work, death on a cross on our behalf, all of humanity. That's a kind of adoption. Before you even ask, I'm going to die for you. 
before you even know there's a need that you don't have a parent, that you don't have, I'm, I'm taking that on. I am taking on the sins of the world so that I might save. So Jesus takes that on like the lamb. But Jesus is Savior not only because he dies on our behalf for our sin, taking on our sin and saving us from sin. Jesus is our Savior because Jesus lives. Folks, without the physical resurrection, we don't have a faith and we don't have um, redemption. We're still those people wallowing in sin, but without an escape, without any hope. Christ's resurrection is essential to a salvitic work. It's difficult. It's a mystery. It's necessary. That's why we say the Apostles' Creed. Some of us go, why do we say that all the time? Because it's good theology, folks. He descended until he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. God's work is both to die for us. There's that death analogy of Hosea, dead, 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 dead. But I will save you. And Christ dies for us that we might live. And he's resurrected. And the promise of the resurrection, um, he and Christ chooses to die in order to redeem us. And then the title of Jesus, the Savior, is unique. Now, Old Testament. So Messiah is a word that we think, oh, yeah, the Messiah. So we know that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah was used for any anointed um, one. So kings sometimes were, um, were, were given that. Um, definitely kings of the world. They were, they were considered God. They were, you know, they had deity. Baal, that's a big thing. Uh, Caesar, Caesar was considered um, a god. All those kinds of things. Lots of people get the titles that are given to God, Old and New Testament, but Savior is a unique title given only to God. That's why Jesus got in so much trouble. Remember? And the name, <laughs> I declare to you, your sins are forgiven. Wait, 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 wait. You can go ahead and heal this person, but don't use that language because that language is unique and only, only available to God. Jesus is going, yes. No, no, you can't. Yes. Jesus, the Savior of the world, forgives sin. Why? Because he is the Savior. So that makes Christ in that very uniqueness of titles. Um, uh, lots of things referred to to human beings. Um, but what is unique as Jesus as a son is our Savior is unique. Um, use his title alone. Uh, he will save his people from their sin. And only God can save us. And, um, and when God saves us, then that should launch us both in kingdom present as well as the security of kingdom future. Lots of people go, well, if Jesus is saving me for eternal life, come back when I'm 95. <laughs> I've had a lot of fun I want to do. But even in um, the Hebrew tradition, as well as in our tradition, our lives are to be reflective of the Salvitic work that God has done in us and through us so that we might live out a life reflective of that grace of God. I don't want to wait till I get to heaven to experience what the Savitic work of Jesus means. I want to appreciate it. I want to live with it. I want to embrace it. I want to be part of um, understanding and knowing and doing good, not for my own salvation, but out of gratitude for the salvation I've been given. That's our call. Don't just wait till you're on your deathbed to go, oh, goody, which is a good thing. I mean, I celebrate this. Yes, we do get to spend eternity with God, but let's not wait for eternity for that to begin. Let's live now with that grace of God being very much a part and real in our lives. Okay, questions? See, I told you. Where's Terry? I told you so. Don't ask me any questions. All right, so here's my question to you. Paul goes out, he goes to the people, and he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a question that many of us have is in a very diverse world, 
how do we share without insulting or um, being beaten up or doing all those kinds of things? How do we bring that good news of Jesus to other people? That's a question I have for you. Give me your thoughts. I, I've heard in the past that, that the Jews didn't really believe or know of heaven, that, that it was all about just being here and now, so For them, that, that, that would reflect how they ref, uh, talk about being saved? Yes and no. Um, for the most part, um, the Jewish community, it's how you live your life out now. Uh, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in eternal life. None of that was out there. There were some who did, but for the most part, when you look at the, the history of Israel, it was about wanting that kingdom here on earth, present in the way in which they lived. That's why they wanted. Um, that's why they wanted a king because all the other kingdoms had kings, and God said, "No, no, no! I'm your king." Well, that's not good enough. <laughs> Sorry, God. I mean, you're good. You're really good, but you know, we can't really see you. We need that physical king. You know, that was a kind of thing, and you saw that in all the way in which they lived their lives. Um, that it was that you know, uh, David, who does speak about forever. And, and in the um, Hebrew community, you still talk about um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Those are people in the history books that are um, referred to as still living. They do that in the New Testament. These are not dead people that, that are our ancestors that we follow. These are alive. Um, Elijah, who's taken up, Where's he going? Well, so there is some language of that, for, but for the most part, salvation for Israel, salvation in Old Testament was present and near future, not eternal future, but what's going on right now. And I, I think that's a good word for us because it keeps us I believe, remembering that God is present, that God is at work, that God is doing things, and that we do want that... Um, uh, that peace, that presence of God in our lives um, here and now. So that was it. Okay. It, are there consequences of the way in which we live our life? There are natural, there are logical consequences. If I steal from you, I'm going to go to prison. Um, my, um, if you're a diabetic and you don't follow certain rules, that will, that the natural consequences of that, which uh, is because we're in a broken world will affect you kind of thing. Christ's love for you will not change because of the sin in your life. The difficulty comes when we don't think we sin. Uh, and if we really talk to people, um, I think most people will admit that they're not perfect, um, but most people are okay with that. Only God is not okay with that. It's like, and, and I love it when we go, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Um, because it makes us feel better. I didn't, years ago we had Ken Blanchard here, and I love Ken Blanchard, he's very, very sweet, but he was talking about the reason why we need Jesus. And he used Mother Teresa, who's my very favorite person in the whole world. And um, I think Mother Teresa's the cat's meow. She gave her life to serve other people. She was the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, and he said, but you know, if, if we think, wow, she's like 85% perfect, but she still needs that 15% for Jesus, then that's when Jesus comes in. Because don't talk about sin. Nobody likes sin. Well, folks, we are Reformed. We love to talk about sin. Because if you don't admit to have sinned, then you don't need Jesus as Savior. You don't need anything. You just go ahead and work all your life and hope that that's enough. I don't think 85% is enough for Mother Teresa. Nothing we do other than putting our faith in Jesus, qualifies us. Jesus does the work. So whether I am at 2% or 92% of being good, um, which, by the way, I just assume you sleep all day if, if you don't want to sin. <laughs> I get up in the morning, I last about a moment. Not even a minute, I last about a moment, and then I'm out. But um, Christ's work is 100% good. His death is 100%. Stop worrying about whether it's, you know, the 15% you need. You need it all. That's the point. You need it all. I will say this one thing about when we share our faith with people, and you do it in many ways. Yes, how you live out your life um, is a great example. Someone used the example of... Um, 
Oh, who is our scholar leader from Egypt, Lynn? Anzaki. Anzaki. So Anzaki, who's a scholar leader who's getting her PhD at Fuller Seminary, she preached for you all last year. And uh, she lives in Egypt. Egypt is predominantly Muslim, and you cannot proselytize. That means you cannot stand on the corner and proselytize. Um, it's against the law there. But how they live out their lives and how they live out their faith has attracted people to them to ask the questions about what it is they believe. Uh, the um, Egyptian Coptic church picks up the trash in Cairo. They have a phenomenal ministry by the way in which, number one, they're very resourceful, but they also have a ministry, and they, it's noted, it's known. The Coptic church in Egypt is growing, the same as the Protestant churches and Catholic churches are growing there. Um, Egypt is learning more and more about uh, Jesus just by what's um, going on, by the way in which people live their lives. What Paul did is a great example, though. He started with what people knew, and he shared with them. Um, so if you have friends that are not of the Christian faith, ask about their faith. Ask about what it is they believe or don't believe. Ask about um, who they are and how they were raised and where they came to that, because those are the common denominators. And um, the very closest we've ever gotten to converting one of our um, heathen friends, as I call them, is he was an atheist, and he spent a lot of time with us, so he, he's kind of become an agnostic, because we vex him, you know, because we seem to be intelligent people, and why do we follow this Jesus? Um, and he's married a, a person who is of the Catholic faith and practices the faith, and, um, and he grew up Catholic, and so I think God is not done with you. You know, there we go. How, how do we witness to people, and are we willing to invest in the lives of people to help them know, and for me, that saving work of Christ. How much the Father loves us, that we should be called as children, and so we are. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this group of women. Uh, thank you for Adrian, who films us every single week, and for Abraham and um, Tim, and for Gustavo and Angelina, who makes everything look nice here and um, helps us be in an environment to learn. Lord, let us proclaim you daily, hourly, and verbally, and in the way in which we live, that you indeed are the Savior of the world, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.